Pelotero Pickle, episode 148. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, really good episode this week. We've got a ton of hitting discussion, some deep dives into mechanics, uh, some really good advice from Tom Brady to CJ Stroud, and then a mailbag question about timing. Check it out. Pelotero Pickle, episode 148. Uh, this is a pre-Thanksgiving episode, so maybe you can listen to this. Maybe you're driving to see some family. Maybe you're, uh, you've got some headphones on in the car trying to avoid real conversations. We support that if it's in, it's all about getting better. Uh, Chris was just mentioning he's gonna, he's got a beard. He's gonna shave it into a mustache. So make sure you tune in next week when he has his mustache in support of men's health in November. So Chris, we appreciate that. Uh, looking forward to seeing that mustache next week. How you doing? I can just leave now if you want. <laughs> I didn't go. do my full intro. A reminder, send us your topics and questions to pickle at pelotero.com or find us on social media at Tuxetting, at Pelotero app, at CC20rake, at Pelotero Pickle, pickle at pelotero.com for email. Is that everything? That's everything. We're off the rails. The mustache is loose again. We actually got fan mail last week saying, I'm going to say mailbag. I don't, fan mail sounds stupid. Uh, said, keep rocking the stash. So it's working despite your efforts when to grab you, you send your own emails from a, from a burner account to support yourself. I got time for that. that I, I, ain't got I ain't got time for that. Burner emails, please. If anything, I'd have burner Twitter accounts. I ain't got time for that. Can you imagine people that create burners for Twitter to like talk trash and just not have a face associated with it? Yeah, it's absolutely did. insane. Well, that was entertainment purposes. I can get behind that. It's different. Did we ever? Yeah. Uh, we, we might need Patrick to sound in here because he tried to reach out to Shizzy to get him on the on the pickle. Did we ever hear back from him? You said that uh, you sent him a message and you immediately got asked if it was like spam or something like that. You got a, like a, a request. So there must have been a lot of people reaching out to Shizzy. I understand. Shizzy, if you're listening, we found you in multiple places <laughs> over the weekend. You're a feature of many group chat texts. Uh, so Shizzy, shout out to Shizzy. For Rizzy. You are off the rails. <laughs> I had a, I had a weekend where I, just, I didn't get a lot of work done this weekend. It was like uh, – I had to cut the grass, hopefully the last grass cut of the year because it's starting to get a little cooler here. Hopefully things go dormant soon. <clears throat> College football day, it was kind of like just hang out with the kids. And then uh, my wife had a little, little friend date yesterday. She went out and spent the day with a friend, which is important and good. But I had like full kid duty, so I just I, I just didn't get a lot of screen time. Um, so I feel rejuvenated mentally to be a goofball. Useful. So I got that, got that goal for me. Uh, what do you got for Thanksgiving plans? You going anywhere? You hosting? What do you got going on? No, nothing. Literally nothing. You're My parents attending? are just gonna come here. There's, there's the there's. So you're hosting people aging. Uh, it's but it's not a normal host. I was I was angling for a go out to a restaurant so that nobody had to do anything. We usually have Thanksgiving at my house with my wife's side of the family and my side of the family, but. Uh, there's aging family members and it's talk about off the rails. 
I'm, I wouldn't mind just sitting on my couch. All thanks. You can day. you can do that. Uh, you'll you'll likely get pulled into doing some things. What do you, like? Are you? Do you have any responsibilities from a food standpoint? No, zero. I Thanksgiving is a zero responsibility holiday for me. What? Um, how does your mom feel about Thanksgiving? Is she? Does she get into it just because it's like a cooking family event? Because she's pure Italian. She's like a, a true blood Italian. So does she get into it? Does she cook a turkey? Does she like just make a whole bunch of pasta she's dishes? Way, she's way too into it. Like far too into it. To like even classic American type it. into it? Uh, not really. She's in a I'm going to do what I think is right type of thing. Yeah, but my that's mom, makes her great. If you, if that's, that's, a, that's a big Silvana thing to do. If you put my mom in any sort of situation where there's an opportunity to cook, then there's going to be way too much food. And it's going to have nothing to do with the theme if she doesn't approve it. But it will be delicious if she's involved. Stick to the Italian stuff, yeah. I mean, she does some American stuff okay, but I don't, All right. I don't really know. I don't, <clears throat> I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't want to do anything. Salty. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. We're going to the Geigers. Thanks for asking. Uh, we're we're doing Thanksgiving oh. at the Geigers, and we're going to do a Christmas Eve. We're doing a little exchange, little uh, family doesn't live in town exchange program here in Texas. Um, I don't know if I have responsibilities yet. You didn't ask about my weekend, so you asked about Thanksgiving. I thought it was a trade off. I okay. know we're going down these, these these routes. If we're going to make the show a personal show. Hey, Bob, my weekend was great. I'm just trying to give you a hard time. I celebrated my sixth wedding anniversary by not celebrating it. Did you say sixth wedding anniversary? Yeah. It popped up in my feed, my uh, Facebook memories. I should have known that. And I, it was like little baby infant Cohen. Crazy. Six years, yeah. huh? Old. 40. Crazy. Wedding anniversary, Thanksgiving, all the above. Crazy. All those things are happening. And, that, and then they'll be done. Just like everything doesn't else. Doesn't seem like six, your wedding doesn't feel six years ago at all. Yeah. I, that. I agree. All right. Fun. Well, let's jump into the topics. We've got a little bit of time crunch today. So good job by me building time in. Uh, I had a thread about Ronald Acuna. I posted it on my personal Twitter. I think Patrick put it up on the Pelotero Instagram. I'm not sure if it made it way, its way to, to the Pelotero Instagram. We could probably retweet it. But uh, basically, it was an, a, a video of Acuna that, first of all, shout out to Acuna for sharing some of his training because I think it's awesome when guys show some of the real work. So it was just a progression. It was uh, you start off the tee uh, outside you know, ball away. Then he did a little step back. At some point he had a bat for alignment, like down on his, like down the toe line. Um, I've never really considered him to have alignment issues. So that was interesting to me. I think he's got some of the best oppo power and direction with, from a swing standpoint. So it was very interesting to me that he had a, a direction aid, training aid, AKA a bat. Uh, then he get the ball moving. He did some step back with the ball moving, and then like the last couple swings was just cut loose. The thing that was very, very intriguing to me was his T swing was completely different than his game swing. And 
I thought it was, I just thought it was very interesting. I thought it was um, enlightening in that <clears throat> I've been really on a big kick with understanding grip pressure and we, there's a lot of talk about using the hands and like feeling the, feeling the barrel and all this stuff with like the hands, but nobody talks about like literally where is the pressure? Like where is the pressure in the hands relative to the swing arc, relative to rotation? Um, I, I've been trying to simplify swing stuff into like you can push the bat forward, like you can slide the knob forward by pushing, like more of a top hand, like both hands like pushing, sliding the knob forward. Um, you can pull the knob forward. That's a way to do it. Um, you can push the bat backwards. That's a way that if you follow the Twitter world of hitting, you can literally just push the bat backwards. There's just different ways to create leverage, different ways to um, to make the bat move. So when I watched Acuna, Acuna traditionally has like a barrel that's not, you know, people talk about the knob pointing the catcher. He doesn't do that in the game. If anything, the barrel like starts pointed towards the backstop a little bit. So his T-swing, the barrel was very angled towards like the pitcher, which is not his game swing. But it made me think about what angles and what pressures and tension is he feeling with the hands in his normal swing that doesn't necessarily visually show up from a barrel angle standpoint. So I was very intrigued by it. I, I liked it. Um, the T-swing to me was very, very different than his game swing. It was more like feel the hands, feel, feel the barrel. Um, then I started thinking this weekend about like how many pendulums are happening. This is all stuff that I know you love talking about, Chris. So like from the lead arm to the wrist, bat to the, the wrist, like different angles that are getting released. And then where is control actually happening? Like, are you supposed to be like, where do you feel control and, and accuracy from? I think a lot of hitters are creating really big hinges, really big pendulums to create power, but they're losing the sense of accuracy and barrel control so a whole bunch of stuff going on there did you see any of these clips yeah i know exactly what you're talking about it's a very uh similar experience to what i had personally as a hitter i, I think my t and cage swings varied significantly from what i did in the game um and I, I don't, I think it got more egregious kind of on purpose as I aged and probably understood myself a little better, but I don't know if it's, I don't know if there's a, a complete awareness by hitters that they're doing that, but I think realistically The, the thing that I used to say to people is I try to feel the biggest moves that I possibly could in the cage so that I could have more awareness of where my bat was. And I think it always comes back down to the bat for me, or I could even narrow that down into the barrel more than anything else. At the end of the day, you're trying to collide the barrel with the baseball. And so it doesn't make sense to me to not think about the barrel all the time and how the barrel's moving. And then ultimately what result the ball's creating. So watching Acuna, it's glaringly obvious that to me anyway, uh, he has to feel certain things to create what he wants when there's a, 
there's a threshold of, of velocity that gets added, right? Or movement or whatever you want to talk about in terms of what the pitcher's trying to accomplish. But the way I kind of describe this is I had to, I had to feel these things so that I knew I was beginning proper sequencing and pattern and all the things that allowed me to ultimately kind of open up a whole different world of hitting, which was the ability to drive the ball, to a big part of the park, so on and so forth. Now, I don't know if Ronald Acuna experiences any of that, but it certainly looks like there's a subconscious way of saying, okay, I've got to create barrel depth. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. In an ideal world, he would probably allow the bat to get angled toward the pitcher, but he would, he sacrifices control when he does that. Right. You, you mentioned sacrificing control and accuracy. And I think, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's the way I'll go with it, but keep going. Keep going. I'll, I'll expand. Whenever, so, when you're done. That, so I, I felt like if I angled the bat a lot or if I had the bat pointed toward the pitcher, there were timing thresholds that I couldn't meet. There were – it just became more fragile. It was just – it was more sensitive, I guess. And I, I understood that as long as – I created proper sequencing. Then I just had to, I had to touch the ball with the good part of the bat. And I think that's the, just tap it. That's a, yeah. <laughs> I actually might be that reference. Yeah. Just tap it. But if once you sequence it, right, you don't have to do anything. <laughs> like you don't, you don't literally don't have to do anything. You just have to touch the ball and, or what it feels like, just touch the ball. Right. So we could go down all these rabbit holes and without visuals and cues and, and displays, it, I think it just becomes words and they just become how do people interpret them. So there's a lot of extrapolating being done in any hitting conversation. And I think that's probably a, a lot of where obscurity comes from or ambiguity anyway. Just for the record, I've picked up a bat and I'm doing swing demos as Chris is talking. Uh <clears throat> I use the term carrying the angle in that thread, which might be, might seem like a, a weird thing to say. Um, hitters that jump out to me that have like less barrel angle or have the illusion of casting. So casting would be like the barrel working away from your head early, right? That's like a cat, a pretty traditional def definition of casting. So Acuna, uh, Frank Thomas was a guy who had some early release with the barrel. Robinson Cano had some early release of the barrel. So those are guys that were very good hitters and still had power. Obviously, Frank Thomas was built like a house, so that, that helped. He was a large individual, <laughs> pretty strong. Cano was more of a quickness-based guy. He was clearly strong. But um, the thing that I see from Acuna, and like, to me, it comes down to like what is lag and what, like how do we define lag? So in the traditional baseball term of lag, that's the point where the barrel's pointed like at the catcher. So like the body's turn and the barrel's pointed straight backwards, like kind of in line with the pitcher. If you look up the definition of lag, it's that's not what it is. Um, I'm going to pull up and read it specifically. Uh, to fall behind in movement, progress, development, to not keep a pace with others, with another or others. So this whole like falling behind a movement thing. So for lag, that would mean like 
parts of my body are rotating, but the bat is not rotating. So there's this like delayed sequence. Uh, if you look at it from a kinematic, pure kinematic standpoint, it's kind of cool to think of it that way where it's weird because you, you don't want to be creating like looseness and slack while you're creating lag. So the question becomes, how do you create lag that is both connected and can be used in a quick way? And <clears throat> Acuna's got some arm barring. He gets some like a, some lengthening of the lead arm, which is not something that's traditionally taught. <clears throat> but the concept of lag and like, is the barrel moving with the initial shoulder movement? That's to me one of the biggest indicators of, of a good swing. Does the bat move with the initial shoulder movement? So then you have to look at what shoulder movement is. Is the shoulder movement going left? Is it going up? Is it going back? There's, there's different considerations with that. Um, where ultimately the best swings to me always felt like almost like a twitch, like a little, little zap of electricity, not this like long, heavy, see a lot of drills right now with guys using like mini med balls and like pulling the ball forward into a wall. Like, you know, those mini med balls with the handle on it, just ripping with their lead arm. I'm like, that is not a swing. That's, that's not, that's a good way to like build a swing that requires you to pull your lead arm as far as you can, as hard as you can. But that's not what a good swing is. So what are you training? It's like, we're creating power in the swing. Great. Not a good swing. So it's, it's just interesting to me. If I watch Ronald Cooney take those swings, it does not feel like he's pulling his arms across to make a swing. So then the question becomes, how is he creating power? Where is, where is stuff happening? We just got it. We both just got a notification in our ears about Bellatero Pickle starting because we started early. Um, to me, the front hip moving back from a rotational standpoint, like the front hip, the front side of the pelvis working backwards. If that doesn't happen, I tweeted this yesterday. If you don't, if you don't create the body movements that these guys create, i.e., like shoulder angles, um, the hip rotation, like if you don't create their movements, I don't think it's possible to understand what they talk about with their hands. So, like when Albert Pujols says, "I take the knob to the ball," if you don't do that, if you don't have the context of his body movement, the the words "I take my hands to the ball." are irrelevant. You just, it's not, you're not having the same conversation. You don't know what it means for him to say it. Everybody can use those words, but they mean completely different things because of the leverage that's getting created. But so, you're, so, Acuna, you're, uh, so Acuna to me, let me uh, just finish. Acuna to me, when he has the barrel, like not the, the knobs not pointed to the catcher, he's still able to create a ton of lag. And because he's so athletic, he's able to create tons of power. Um, because his, you know, you can call it rate of force development. He's just so explosive and fast that he has one of the shortest swings from an arc length standpoint. He doesn't need to angle the bat towards a pitcher to still create a ton of power. And if you think back to like, remember old school pools when he'd like have the barrel pointed back and then it would always angle forward. To me, it's all about where, where are they creating tension in their hands and how are they able to leverage that tension to create lag relative to the rest of the body? That was a lot of words. I don't know if that's going to play well on a podcast. <laughs> so the, you did two things just now that I'm going to say differentiate you from the rest of the world. The first thing you did, you looked up the word lag, which is something that by and large, 99.9% .9 of hitting people that I know would never do that. 
right? They they wouldn't they, they wouldn't even go that far. They they would use their words to try to explain the thing rather than really be defined about how they're using their words. And and I think that's probably what made you different than most, or why a lot of people resonated with what you were saying, is because you were very specific about when you used words, you were careful about how you used words. And then still people misinterpreted a lot of things that you said, because you want to talk 2023 and society at large. The, the paradigm that's been created about the baseball swing is there's just a lot of people using words. And it's probably why there's a lot of holiday and express guys that think they can teach hitting or post a hitting video or whatever, when they, they're, they're really not, they're not even in the conversation, right? They're, they're like so far on the surface that, you know, they think they're accomplishing things or, but then generally when we get in a room with those guys, like the conversation is not a conversation. It's more of just a, they want to hear what you have to say or what I have to say. And I'm not trying to be a narcissist right now, but so two things to expand on that, right? You mentioned uh lead arm extension for Acuna and, and I'm going to take it from the hitting side, right? I don't think there's a hitter on the, on the planet that I know of, right. That's hit at a high level that hasn't tried to respond and I should say the good ones, like the ones that I kind of revered, that hasn't tried to respond to what the ball was telling them. So, so much of what gets built is a response to the ball, right? And it's a real-time, you know, adjust in space and, and time based on the feedback that they're getting from what the ball is telling them. So, you talked about the arm bar specifically, right? You think about Ken Griffey Jr., Frank Thomas, uh, anybody else that would, would enter the conversation. These guys wanted the ball further away from their body. The ball further away from your body and deeper in the hitting zone allows you to create better leverage, which allows you to create better speed if the barrel has good direction, right? I think so many young hitters get caught up trying to hit the ball out front because they're trying to create speed because naturally they're trying to hit the ball in front of their body. And somebody told them at one point to take the bat to the ball and then they don't create tension in the right places. So the arm bar is not bad if you have space, right? Hitting, like hitting a baseball is all about space because at the end of the day, you have to go deep right now. Well, and even for a 12 year old kid, you have a, you have at least a 28, 29, 30 inch bat in your hand. That's, like you're trying to hit with the end of that thing, right? All the mass is in the end. And that's the part of the ball you're trying to hit or trying to bat part of the bat you're trying to hit the ball with. And then you add 20 to 30 inches of arm length on each individual. And now all of a sudden you're create you're really creating a lever. Like it's a, it's really like where, where is the weight? Where is the leverage? Where's the whip come from? So it's all down the end of the bat. So the arm bar isn't bad. If you have room to do it, it's actually probably a good thing if if you get committed to standing off the plate if you have an arm bar and now you try to hit everything out front then you're kind of screwed probably because now you got, you're reducing the amount of time you have to see the ball so when i look at acuna i look at a guy who kind of organically built this swing and, and i again we'd have to go talk to ronald and really like dig into the teeth of where his instruction came his, from but his younger brother is coming up right now i think he's he's young like 14 or 15 but i remember seeing like prospect videos of him as an international signing bonus type guy um 
trying to do a very, very similar swing. So it might be a family thing. It might be whatever, whatever people that they're around in the Dominican. I, I don't know what it is exactly, but I should, I want to look into that more. He's Venezuelan. Oh, I'm sorry. Venezuelan. He's Venezuelan. He's actually playing winter ball right now, which is absurd. I saw that. I saw that. I saw that. I saw that. He went, he yeah. went bridge his first game too. Yeah. Just a pop up to right. All right, you ready? I'm gonna I'm gonna say some stuff that's important. So, a lot oh, of people, and this 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 ties into the armbar thing, because Griffey, I saw a video of Griffey this weekend, last week, talking about how he was always taught to have the barrel in the zone as long as possible. So if you're thinking about getting the barrel in the zone for a long time, it makes sense to create depth and create like to flatten it deep. It's like trying to hit, learn how to hit a draw in golf. Like you got to get that club head working more from the inside, which means it has to, you got to create some, some angles. So people, I think in general, look at the hips opening as a power based move. And I'm not saying it's not, but if you turn your hips and the hips, like if the back hip and the front hip are both turning and rotating and the back foot is spinning, like you're just as a righty, you're just going left as a right, as a lefty, you're just turning right. So then you get into the whole scissoring thing, right? And how the back foot will stay back or it stays anchored or whatever you want to say with that. Spinning off the ball is a bad thing. Universally accepted, right? Chris, can we assume, can we, can we agree that spinning off the ball is bad? Yes. Sure. Coming around the ball, just turning left. You lose oppo immediately. It's not good. So if you look at it from a pendulum standpoint, if you look at it from like, where's the lever? Where are the levers? The left hip clearing is more about creating distance away from the front shoulder than it is about actually like creating power. So if you look at the front hip, because the, the front shoulder, if the hips and the shoulders both turn left at the same time, that is the definition of spin. So the hips have to clear while the front shoulder stays in. You hear guys talk about sticking their nose on the ball, keep your front shoulder in, don't pull off, blah, blah, any, any, any variation of that phrase, correct? Like you don't want to pull off the ball. So the front hip clearing is more about creating distance between the lead hip and the lead shoulder. The lead shoulder does not go left when the front hip goes left. So if you get into that position where the the front shoulder is working away from the front hip, you're getting clear. If you keep turning left, that's when you're going to spin. That's where like the anchor move comes in with the backside because you're not going to just keep spinning off the ball. So if you have length from the front hip to the front shoulder, then you have length from the front shoulder to the wrist and the angle from the wrist and forearm to the bat. These are like a triple pendulum effect going on where now you can talk about ground reaction forces. And um, I've talked to, to Joey who has the force plates and how the, the front foot pressure spikes twice, not once. So this whole, like, when does the ground reaction force actually happen? If you're creating lag correctly, that system from the front hip to the lead shoulder, lead shoulder to the wrist, that lead form wrist to the bat, that holds that whole unit becomes like the thing that gets like there's if there's no slack in that system, then you can create that good direction and you can create lag correctly 
the way that Acuna is. So when I see Acuna swing, so, he's got this like laid off bat angle. He's still creating all the right lag and he's creating all the right systems to fire a swing instantly where it's not this just like, I'm going to rotate to kill the ball, which is horrible, which is what like we, when we see people saying pull the ball in the air, that's what we see. And that's what we know is wrong. So the core, the core root of why, the core root of why do those things happen in most high level hitters? I would, I would argue that the core root of why is twofold. Number one, and probably the thing that I've never heard anybody in the swing revolution talk about to create speed, you need to create space. Right. If you don't have space for your arms to go, so a kickback, a whole like the, the turn your hips, the, the when you talk about the, the shoulders turning up, right? Like and the distance between the shoulder and the front hip, and I never related it to this. You're gonna have to it's dependent on A where you stand in the batter's box, number one, which is probably a, a, a connected a to what your swing is built to do. Whether 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 your swing wants to go left or go right. If your swing goes right, you're going to stay off the plate and you have space, right? So you can arm bar all you want. If you're on top of the plate, your swing goes left, Alex Bregman versus Ronald Acuna, like you need to create space. So you need to get out of there with your hips and your midsection to be able to go left efficiently. If you have, if you're off the plate and your swing goes right more than left, then you can stay off the plate and you hit the ball further back all you want. So the, the, the bigger picture to me is the feel that a hitter needs to have to be getting to, to top speeds or getting to acceleration, what parts of the zone are they doing it in and how much space do they have away from their body? Because when it, it, there's this like, there's this shitty visual that I have in my head of guys that get bound up, right? Like they don't have room to go because they're trying to stay closed, they're on top of the plate. Like Naturally, most young hitters, most amateurs get on top of the plate because they're afraid of the outside corner. They've never been taught to hit the ball away. Everybody tells them to hit the ball oppo, but they're facing speeds that generally are non-threatening when they're in Little League or when they're in youth baseball. And because of that, they naturally will go out front because they don't know how to vary tempos yet. They don't have enough proprioception, right? They hit one ball good way out front, and they go, oh, I want to do that again. And then no patience, no discipline to wait for the baseball or really just lack of awareness of what they're trying to accomplish. So number one, you need room. Like you just need room for your hands to go to get to fast, right? To get to some version of top speed. And number two, the timing component of it all, right? So you talk, we're, we're talking about Acuna who the bat goes out or, or will get more like angled out or whatever the, the, the proper terminology that you use where the bat like kind of, like gets laid out instead of pointed toward the pitcher. To me, that becomes like a deleveraged feel, right? Where having the bat angled forward is very, it's a very leveraged feel because you feel like you can go really fast from there. But letting that bat out is more of a component of timing where you're just not really quite sure what timing needs to be. So you like let it out slowly. And then you realize that if you stay on that path, now all you have to do, as long as your sequencing is really good, you just have to touch it. You just have to touch it. Now you can touch it back in the zone and touch it instead of touch it out front. And that's like a feeling that I had that was very distinct to me when I started being able to hit the ball over the right center field wall. Like I could let the bat out 
And as long as I that twitch, that that lightning bolt, that flash that you're talking about happened and it held good direction, like with the hips and the bat, then all I had to do was feel like I let it out toward the first base dugout. And now I had all the speed I needed in the back of the zone and I knocked the shit out of balls to right center field. And I, that was a feeling that was very foreign to me when it first started happening. And it became, I became obsessed with it to the point where I just stopped trying to hit the ball on my body altogether. <clears throat> I had a tweet yesterday that I think went nobody. <laughs> I, had a funny, I had a funny Twitter thread last night where I wrote some swing, some swing thoughts, some swing thoughts, colon, and then the swing thoughts were below that. So I think people were like, thought I was asking for swing thoughts. <laughs> but my first one was time on timing mechanisms. A good timing mechanism is when the unload dictates the load. A bad timing mechanism is when the load dictates the unload. And that was like a very profound thing for me to say that I, it felt like really clear and made sense to me. So like if I get super hard, if I get like really locked in, like what I was always taught, like get my foot down, get my hands back. Like that's going to dictate how I have to like push and create my swing. That, that load is going to dictate how I open with good timing. And I was laughing about this because I said it was a unique two trigger system, <laughs> which is, uh, what's his name? What was his name? Uh, not Riniac, uh, Charlie Lau Jr. Wow. Charlie Lau. Yeah. Um, so with a good swing, like, how the body's going to clear and how you're creating tension is how the swing is created. So the load becomes incredibly dynamic and like adjustable and flowy and rhythmic. To me, that's what I see good hitters doing. There's some swing right now. Like I'm just going to, I'm just going to say this. Like somebody put up a swing of Ted Williams today. Uh, Joey comment, Joey Pena commented on like uh, a Ted Williams swing. And I was watching that being like, can you imagine watching Ted Williams hit being like, oh, that's the high level pattern. That's what teacher man promotes. That that's a, that's a match. Holy smokes. Like it's crazy to me that people think that those are the same. It's just a leverage system. It's just a leverage system. It's just a leverage system. How do you create leverage? How do you feel tension? How do you create a swing? If you preload everything, so, like pull your hands back and then like flick the like, what are we talking about? Golly, and it, I'm not saying it doesn't. You, I'm not saying it doesn't work. It's just don't say that the same thing. If you, if you, again, I, I try to like get to the the easiest part of why things happen, why the baseball swing gets built the way it does. And when I started having conversations with guys that were had done it at the highest level and obviously I, I always revert to rich when I talk about stuff. One of the things that rich Kedman said to me early on, very early on, one of the, f the first things that I remember is see how easy you can swing and hit it hard. Right. Which if you think about it, like it makes complete sense because anybody that's gone full gangster hack, hundred percent swings, max effort, everything that's being like connected to like what the world is talking about. Oh, pull the ball in the air, swing really fast. Those feelings to me are so detrimental to impacting the baseball and lead to so much swing and miss, which is the generation we're in right now. Yeah, just go ahead, optimize, but you're going to swing and miss. The time. See how easy, see how you're easy optimizing, you can swing and hit it hard. You're optimizing for like an exit velocity instead of being a good hitter. And good hitters create good exit velocities. So, correct. 
So see how easy you can swing and hit it hard is like the clearest picture I have in my head of Ted Williams. It's just so flowy and rhythmic and he's just moving the bat and he's not, he's not doing anything forced. And the reason that gets built is because at some point as a hitter, you have enough awareness, you have enough intuition, you have enough experience to say, every time I try to do more than this, I miss the ball, like, or I miss hit it. So there's this blend of like, I'm trying to hit the ball hard. And now you're just finding functional ways to do that. Right. So when you're a kid and I watched most young kids, the ones that set the bat back early, they get all this tension in their arms. And then when the tension's in their arms, they're blocked. They can't, they can't, there's no separation. There's no proper direction of the bat. The lead arm can't get up. The bat can't work back as the body's starting to turn. The elbow doesn't get under as the hands have like the hesitation, the delay whatever you want to call it, external rotation, blah, blah, blah. And now lag. lag. (laughs) And and then all of a sudden you're dealing with a kid who now is, is like constantly mishitting balls in a practice setting. And you're like, how are you allowing yourself to mishit the ball in a practice setting? So if you want to just make it as basic as possible. And I put up a tweet about this the other day. I said, you want to make it as basic as possible. Hit the pitch down the middle and hit a line drive over the second baseman's head as a right-handed hitter. Hit a line drive to the opposite field on a pitch down the middle home plate. If you want to keep it simple as a hitter, that formula will work. Just ask Derek Jeter 3,200-something times or whatever the amount of hits he ended his career. He also said he he only tried to hit fastballs. Only tried to hit fastballs down the middle his whole career. Mm. His whole (laughs) career, he looked for one pitch. So literally, like – in order to build the most simple version of right, you better be thinking about down the middle and over the opposite field infielder's head because that thought process, that mindset is what allows you to have the proper depth so you're not exposed to all the bullshit. As soon as you start thinking about left field as a right-handed hitter, you create an exposure. You are, you are exposed. Oh, by the way, Ronald Acuna doesn't pull fastballs in the air. Like, he doesn't. He pulls breaking balls in the air. If he does pull a fastball in the air, it's by accident. But I'll tell you what, you go look at the majority of this guy's spray chart and it's in a big part of the field. Right. Like it and so the reason why Ronald Acuna is so good is because of that, right? Like that's that's the the, the reality of like what he's capable of doing. Very few guys are Mookie bets, right? Like Mookie like obviously lacks the strength and force and and mass behind what he's doing. So he's recognized like, Hey, if I want to leave, I better pull the baseball. So he's learned how to be more efficient within that, that context. Right. That doesn't mean he doesn't hit the ball the other way, but like Mookie to me is like more special in the way his body moves and flexes and things like that. So anyway, we can sit here and talk about this for days. No, the, the thing I was thinking about the other day is like, I don't think there'll ever be like another swing breakthrough, right? Like we're capable of, of analyzing and breaking down and watching and visualizing, talking about the swing at the, at the highest level we'll ever be able to talk about. Because until we can connect all the things we're talking about to actually getting a human to move that way, I don't think there's like another true swing breakthrough in my opinion or anything that'll pause the whole industry and go, oh my God this guy found something nobody else has. Well, the way that I look at it now is this is a tie into motor preferences, but how do we increase our rate of success? 
So anybody that teaches anything specific, like super hyper specific, is wrong. Is well, they're not wrong, but they're only right for a smaller percentage of people. So it becomes about understanding what works for different people and then like how elaborate is your toolkit to be able to handle that. And can one of the things I love about Joey, people give Joey a hard time on, on social media about the scissor kick stuff and like him and I laugh about it because I'm like a barrel tip leg kick guy because Donaldson was a barrel tip leg kick guy and then I get <clears throat> I get labeled as a barrel tip, barrel tip leg kick guy. He does a lot of social media posts about about the crossbody counter the scissor kick type stuff. So you get you get labeled as that. The one of the things I appreciate about Joey the most is and it's it's Joey, it's Bleaker, it's it's everybody that's like really deep into a topic, like really obnoxiously deep into a topic. They're becoming experts in something. And they're digging deeper than anybody else. They're spending more time, they're spending more energy, they're they're building knowledge, they're building awareness around things, they're answering questions, they're solving specific problems. Are those problems specific to every hitter on the planet? No, they're not. They're just, it's not reasonable to think that they are. But for the right hitter, the right player, that information is gold. That is their way. So I, I thoroughly enjoy people who go too deep, that, that live in the weeds, that, that, that's what, like, that's what makes them valuable and interesting to the market is that they're willing to go deeper into a topic than anybody else. You start getting in trouble when you start trying to say this is for everybody and, and start calling other people wrong because then that means you have a blind spot and you, there, there's maybe confirmation bias. There's, you've had success with certain players and you're not necessarily paying attention to the players that do it other ways with success because that happens. Um, but it's way more about figuring out what works for each individual player, not trying to be right for your sake, but being right for the player's sake think that's the next wave that's the the future of this all this whole thing which becomes way more relational which becomes yeah like do we need data to, to support uh, that stuff yes but can we use like these global models to define that in terms said of this, standpoint? no absolutely not i said this probably about a year ago like as we started getting deeper into the motor preference stuff with swope and i probably might have been even a little bit more than a year ago I said, you know what's funny about all this? And it probably, this is probably the, the light bulb moment that I had when Matt first gave me the presentation. I said, the hysterical part about this is I now connected the fact that what Bobby Tewksbury allowed Chris Colabello to do was, we call it threefold. A, you gave me permission to do something different, which nobody had ever, right? Like no coach or, or mentor or his swing guy had ever given me permission to explore mechanically. And B, what you allowed me to do by doing that was to explore my own motor preferences, right? You got, you allowed me to now get outside of a box that had been built around what I thought swing principles were. And had those swing principles been the right ones, which are it, so now when I say like, I, I, there's only two absolutes in my mind in the swing, the hips, the hips have to go first, right? Like the hips have to go before your torso and, and the bat. 
And ultimately, the bat at some point has to go around this axis, around the pivot point that is your hands, right? As opposed to getting pulled off that axis or, or pushed or pulled or whatever you want to call it. So to me, from an absolute standpoint, that's all I got for you. Like everything else is a, is a product of your style, right? It, it, if you really think about when you watch younger players hit, those the tension, the levers, like the, the reason why the pendulums get messed up a lot, as I was talking about before, is they don't actually try to see how easy they can swing and hit it hard. They try to see how hard they can swing and hit it hard a lot of times. So all the tension gets created. As soon as the tension's created, if you have if you have no looseness or freedom in your arms, there's automatically a, a, like a casting, a pulling, a, there's no lever. There's no way to catch that speed that your torso is allowed to create, right? It's not lower half. It's not rotation on rotation on rotation. It's just you take the lower half rotation. Now the arms are coming with the torso, so you don't get to catch any of that velocity or force. Yeah, we could definitely do this topic for a long time. It's good. Uh, you you kind of went into this a little bit before, but you had a pretty long post about the connotation of guru and what the coaching relationship actually is. Um, I know you just touched on it. That was threaded throughout what we just talked about, but specifically to that topic, I saw that post the other night. I was like, what? I didn't see the uh, – somebody blocked me, so I couldn't see what prompted that post. But, uh, yeah, I care to expand on that? Yeah, like it's just annoying that – like it's annoying to me. Like this industry, this industry is so spiteful and hateful now. And it all comes down to confirmation bias, like personal confirmation bias, right? So Jeff Fry learned how to swing on his own. And because of that, he was able to find success, relative success, playing, get to the big leagues, playing the big leagues. Like nobody should ever discredit somebody's ability to do that, right? Could Jeff Fry have been better? Sure, right? Just based on his athletic characteristics, whatever, his swing could have allowed him to be better. His swing for most parts of his career was probably a liability more than it was an asset. It certainly wasn't what is considered like high level pattern now or like, or any version of like depth or that's not what he was thinking about. It's clear. Like it was a very downward plane. Did it work? Was it functional? Did it allow him to compete and hit 290 for his career? Yeah, absolutely. So, and I, I asked this the other day with you guys about Nelson Cruz, right? As his, his video got posted, I, I was like, hey, if he had worked differently, could he have hit 600 homers? And we can never answer that question. And the funny part is about all this is I watched the Shohei documentary right when it came out. And, and Shohei, you want to talk about an insightful dude? Now, two things that came out of that. Number Where one, this dude was writing vision boards when he was like 50. It's on ESPN+. Plus. He wrote a vision board when he was 15. In the middle of the vision board was his ultimate goal, was play baseball in the major leagues, like become the best player in the world, whatever. It's in Japanese, so you can't read it. Around the first thing, he had eight boxes that were like the things that he needed to work on to be able to do that. Then around that were eight other boxes where he took the peripheral stuff to the end goal, and it was in the, and those were in the middle, and around each one of those things were, were eight different things that he had to do to accomplish that. And 
Pedro is like doing commentary. Pedro has the vision. He's like, what's more impressive to me? And I was thinking this as he was saying it, than what Shohei's done as a baseball player is the fact that when he was 14 or 15 years old, he did this. And then Shohei talked about, I just found out that when you were young, it was much easier to remember things when you wrote them down. So if you just had a note in front of you, like you got to see it every day and it, it, it was a clear reminder to me and it became, it was just so obvious. I didn't think that was special at all. And here's Pedro being like, dude, this is incredible. Like you have a 14, 15 year old kid wrote this, like you shit me. And so circle back to the, the guru aspect of it, right? The, the post that I made the other day, it's annoying to me that because somebody, somebody doesn't connect with the way somebody else teaches or learns or, or, or doesn't even want to pay attention to how they do. They just don't like the fact that somebody's going to layers that they don't understand. And they go, oh, the gurus are talking about this. That's the problem with Jeff Fry, right? Like, it's the problem with anybody that's in his camp. It's like, dude, like, you don't even understand. Like, what Tukes did for me goes so far beyond the time we spent in the cage. Like, we spent hours upon hours at night after games. Like, you were a resource. You were, you were a, the net to, that I could fall in when I was, like, like, you were there to catch me, you know? And that's what, like, a real hitting guru is. Like, that's what a real hitting person does. They just won't allow you to fail by yourself. They won't blame you for your failure. They'll blame themselves and try to find ways to connect with you in, in a way that nobody else would. Most people just say, ah, man, like, that guy just won't. He, he can't buy into what, what I'm doing. So, like, I'm, I'm just, I'm out. And that's... Like that's messed up. So it's it's a deeper thing. There's a relationship that's rooted in trust and uh, somebody being a confidant, like somebody to just talk to, to let your emotions out to, so that they can describe what they're feeling. Because that's what makes hitting so so hard, right? I was I actually watched a, another documentary last night. It was on Amazon, and it's like twenty years old. It's called uh, Life in the Minors or something like that. It features two minor league guys. And Ken Revisa got interviewed in it. It's like, this is why it's so hard. It's a mental grind, dude. Like it, it, like dealing with playing 150, 160, 140 games after you've run a 40 or 50 game sprint in high school and college, like it's just not the same. And it's hard there because if you just, if you go bad for like a week and a half in college, you think like you're done. It's just such a messed up paradigm, man. And like, I, and people want to be like, oh, well, that guy doesn't know he's talking. Well, he's a guru. Like, yeah, there's some idiots on the internet that are just posting drills that think that they're like, re they've reinvented fire. Those are the guys that you can call out all you want. I don't care. Like, I'm not even, I'm not going to waste my time on them because it's so obvious that they're, they're just posting this to try to get clicks or try to get somebody to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. Do what everybody else is doing. Great. Have high production quality on your, on your drills. Awesome, man. Nice. Sweat sick. I saw that drill when I was eight. But you wanna like you wanna call in the question guys like guys like you and Casey and Joey that like really deeply care about their hitters? Like you wanna do that? Like really? Cool. Awesome. Thanks, man. Well, yeah, you, I mean they're proving there, everything I need to know about you. There are people that are just out there trying to build an audience and that's their primary objective is to have a following. I think it's pretty obvious when you see those accounts what they're what they're trying to do and why they're doing it. But I guess it's obvious to us. It's not obvious to like 
the average baseball softball parent. But it becomes obvious after after the first week of hitting with them or the third week of hitting with them. It becomes obvious when they don't have solutions for you when it gets difficult. Because, like, here's the thing, Bobby. It, when you get to layer two, which is, oh, by the way, this game will get hard for everyone. Hitting will become hard for anyone that does it. Period. End of story. So as soon as it gets hard, when you're 0 for 12, 0 for 16, 0 for 20, 1 for 30, whatever the number is that creates anxiety about the game, what is that person going to do for you? What do they become for you? Are they there? Do they have answers? Do they have solutions? Can they help you find solutions? Can they help you discover? Yes, no, or maybe. Or to me, it's obvious when they're no. All right, so next topic, we've got a video with Tom Brady, CJ Stroud. Don't fully understand the concept of this. If this is Tom Brady's like new podcast, I don't, I, the video was really cool. Um, I'll set up the topic so that you, cause you're the one that has to answer this. I can't answer this. So CJ Stroud asked Tom, he kept using the term straight and narrow, but he is essentially asking him, like, now that you're at the highest level, you're having success. How do you stay focused? How do you deal with the aspect of people essentially asking to be entertained and how people are coming up to you, ask for tickets. They want to, they want to kind of be in your life. They want to experience it. They want to be like this sucker fish on your career. And, um, Brady's response was really cool because he was like, basically said, it's not your responsibility to entertain them. It's, they're not going to come to your job. Like as a player, you're not going to go to their job and say, Hey, uh, when you really need to focus, Hey, can I get a ticket? Hey, are you buying dinner tonight? Hey, blah, blah, blah. Um, what was this like for you as a player? Because you, you experienced like playing indie ball for seven years. I can't imagine too many of your high school buddies or college buddies were hitting you up for tickets versus getting to the big leagues, playing in Fenway Park, which is like your, essentially your home stadium. What was that transition like? And, and how hard is that to deal with, especially being a young player feeling like, how much responsibility do you feel towards that as like you were and you were older and you were, is the whole you you were kind of in a unique situation you weren't like the signing bonus baby you weren't you know first round draft pick but you still got there so i'm i'm just very curious i, I loved brady's response cuz he's like look it's your job you have to really treat this as your job it's your profession and when it's your time to work it's your time to work you can't be responsible to entertain other people I just like that wording. Honestly, I think I, I loved it. I loved every part of it. I loved I loved being, and Jeter said this, and the captain, I knew. It's funny, you know, how you're attracted to people that in your life that you resonate with, and you probably don't even know it. And Jeter talked about it in the captain. He said, I loved when people were there to watch. I loved it. It made it feel important. It made it feel more important. The fact that more impo- more people were in tune with what I was doing made it feel more important. And when it felt more important, it brought me to different levels, right? Um, it's why I got started getting called Red Light on Channel 3 TV when I was playing in Worcester. Um, it's why I performed better in the playoffs, I think. I, I cared that people cared. Now, that being said, right, early on, I think so much of 
why you connect with sports and entertainment. People become your, you revere them. They become your stars is because of the attention that they get. Like when you're little, I think you think that it's cool to have attention and people follow you and people pay attention to what you're doing and, and want to be in your life. It becomes super, super obvious at some point. I was, again, I was lucky that I got to experience this as an older player. I wanted to sign every autograph for every person, even though I look back now in the minor leagues and I go, why the hell do you want my autograph? Like, you don't, you're not, this is just for, for the experience to be able to say, look at what I did or, or, or have some feeling of like, oh, I got to interact with the person that was on the field with the man in the arena, right? Even though I don't know who he is or I don't care about who he is at the end of the day. Because how many autographs did I sign for the Worcester Tornadoes that the kid that was asking me for the autograph didn't even know who I was? And that probably happened in the big leagues too. Um, the, the funny part is you feel like it matters, right? And then at some point, as you garner more attention, right? When you get on a national stage, right? When you're, and, and it didn't really happen for me that much in Minnesota because Minnesota is kind of, it's its own area. People are very kind and quiet there. Very Midwestern. And it's really yeah. more of an East Coast. Yeah. It was more of an East Coast thing. So when I started playing in Toronto, it became kind of glaringly obvious. The funny part about all of it is, and, and I, I recognize this one day and I'll, I'll tell a very specific story. Is that if at, if at any point I I just went out and started signing autographs at the field during a game, right, or before a game, the thirty minutes before a game, what would happen is probably ninety percent of the people in that stadium would line up to get my autograph, whether that was like a life dream or mission of theirs or not. They would just want the experience. Is that fair? Is it is ninety too high? It might be eighty, right? Like, well, it's it's whatever. uh. Getting an autograph from a major league player, it's major league players are, it's like a form of celebrity. It's a form of um, like, there's a special thing for high achievers and major league players are high achievers. Ultimately, like you guys are peak performers of a thing and you're on TV and you're, it's like you're to be there in real life and to get a moment of that person's time is a big deal. So let's like, call it like 80% we were at, of the stadium would come down. Yeah. Remember when we were at Chad's house? If I, if I, yeah, at yeah. Chad's house and yeah. we were looking at the signatures and like there's a Ty Cobb signature, there's a Babe Ruth signature. And it's like Babe – the thing that's fascinating is Babe Ruth took his pen stroke to that ball. If some computer did that, it means nothing. There's no value in it. So the fact that it's like a moment of that person's life – was was given to you and it's represented by this baseball and that that person's really important it, 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 there's a certain gravity to that the signature is about the story to me more than anything else the signature is about the story unless you're uh, like a a true collector or somebody that's trying to make money off that moment right but let's just say that if i played in front of 50,000 people at home in toronto that let's say 80% of those people would have come down to try to get my autograph right now, the thing that you, you come to terms with as a player or that I came to terms with was the reason why those people want my autograph is because I'm good at my job, right? Because I'm good at doing my job, which is out on the field. Is that fair? So, like, you think about it and you go, all right, they, they like that I'm good at my job, so they want my autograph. Now, as a, as a player, 
oh, I want to give back to the fans, right? If anybody wants my signature, who am I to say no to them? That's the way I used to look at it. So now I start thinking like, okay, I'll sign for everybody. And then at some point you realize that everybody is literally a continuous loop, right? It, it, like, it would never stop. If, if I just expose myself to, I'm going to give out free autographs in Toronto every day during the season, I could probably go the 16 hours that I was awake and people would show up to get those autographs, whether it was repeat over and over again. So you want my time to get my autograph. And now that's going to take away from me being good at my job. So at some point you have to learn how to say no. And then you recognize as an athlete that at some point you're going to be an asshole. You're going to be an asshole to somebody, whether you want to be or not. And it was funny, like the year after we went to playoffs, my mom and dad were very adamant about being kind to people, right? Like they were always awesome. They talked to ushers, the people at the hotels. They want to let everybody know that they were my parents. And, and because they had such a deep sense of pride, not because of narcissism, maybe a little bit, right? But they had such a deep sense of pride and kindness that my dad would always ask me, oh, you know the usher in the 14th section? I was like, I have no idea who you're talking about. Oh, you know Janine that's working at the hotel? I was like, no clue. Like I just interact with these people on a transactional basis daily when I check in. And we were at spring training in 2016. And so now there's everybody at camp that year. It was crazy. Like we, camp was full every day. So when we'd come out of the game, we'd go down the first baseline and we'd go to go down to the clubhouse. And every day there'd be, I don't know, uh, 150 people waiting for an autograph. So I, every day when I come out, I'd say, hey, guys, I have 10 minutes or I have 15 minutes. Or I, and I would, I would lay it down right away. So you start signing. I said, hey, one day there were, there were just a ton of people. And I said, I'm only going to do one today for everyone, okay? I, if you have multiples, I'm sorry. I, can't, I, I won't have time. I want to try to get as many people as possible. So this one lady is like putting two balls in front of my face. And I'm like, I sign the one and I just hand it back. I don't make a scene. And she like kind of gets annoyed. And then she moves like three people down and then puts the ball out, puts the other ball out again. I was like, didn't I just sign for you? And she was like, oh, just sign it. Like, and I was like, you know what? If you hadn't acted like, such an asshole i probably would have but now i'm definitely not going to and everybody kind of clapped and then after 10 minutes everybody understood you try to be as as forthcoming and and, and direct as possible so now i go talk to my parents right over on the side where i have to tell them hey i'm going to meet you here here and here and they got two of their friends there and i'm just kind of bullshitting with them real quick and all of a sudden a little kid runs over with a ball and my mom takes the ball out of his hand and puts it in my face and i was so annoyed in that moment at my mother because she didn't understand the connotation in depth of like what it represented for me to sign one more autograph after I already said I'm done. Right now, most people like half the people are going to be like, Oh, that's nice. He signed for a kid. And half the people will be like, well, you said you were done. Why didn't you sign for me? So there's really no way to win. And as soon as you come to terms with all of that and that you recognize it is about you doing your job and then give your time, however you can to the fans then you're good. And I think that's, you can't make it about that. Cause for a while, for me, I liked the attention. I was like, Oh, give me more attention. I like it. Put me on camera, put me in the center. But then at some point you just start to recognize that no matter what you do, you're going to get torn down. Like somebody is going to try to tear you down. You can be the nicest person ever. You can be as humble as pie. You can do an interview where you cry as deeply as like you can on a, on a, on a TV interview and people are going to say it's fake. So, like, why worry about any of them? Why yeah, worry about that, any of that? 
the word that you've been dancing around is distraction. At some point, it becomes a distraction to the main goal. And you can give as much time as possible until it becomes a distraction, until it starts taking away from the thing that is most important. Because like you said, if you just went outside and signed autographs for 16 hours a day, you're not going to be a very good baseball player. It's just the reason you're there to begin with. Um, And I think accepting the fact that you're going to disappoint people in that role, like you can give and give and give and give. Um, You only have so much time, which I think is ultimately why the autograph, why showing up is such a big deal to be able to, to share a moment with a person. That's, that's the most valuable thing we have is time literally. So, um, it's the resource that we don't have so much of. We can never get more of. Then you just start to recognize who the people are. You have to start making distinctions about people that are. It'll really change their life, or it'll make an impact on their life in a positive way. So, and that's yep. that's that's the totality of it. You have to just pick, and you got to be subjective about it. But yep. when you, you at the root at the root of all of it, you have to love what you're doing. You have to love the game, and I that always held true for me. So, yeah, just love the game, man. Yep. All right, we have one more one more topic. It's a mailbag question from Brent. Uh, so in terms of timing, you, you often talk about the players need to understand timing. How do you build that understanding? Or how does a player grow his understanding of timing? We'd love to hear you discuss this on a future pod. Guess what, Brent? It's the future pod, 148. So what is timing? Um, the thing that I want to talk about this is and I, I've talked about this consistently. This is like, you know, we're 10 years plus into this topic because it was in my book, but this concept of being on time twice. So there's a, there's a pitch release on time and then there's a contact on time. And the time between those two points is variable. So if you throw a fastball, an off speed, a change it, whatever, even if you look at it from an inside corner, outside corner, the, the starting point for understanding timing is, is when you need to get ready to see the ball because you can't make a decision until you see the ball. And then how are you going to create your move to be on time to contact? I think the next tier of that, the next dimension of that is understanding based on the pitcher's timing, that release point timing is also variable. So if the guy's throwing really, really hard, you're going to have to get ready before he releases the ball or she released the ball. If they throw really slow, understanding like that ball might need to get out of the hand before you start moving. So in the context of hitting and what is hitting, there's a certain amount of time that you're going to have to be able to cover. As a, We've been using the term uh, velocity threshold. I think we're probably going to try to make that like a mainstream term, where when you're younger, off a tee, there's no such thing. There's no velocity threshold on a tee because the ball is not moving. As soon as you introduce a moving ball, like the slowest time you're really going to encounter is like 0. 0.8, 0. 0.75 seconds is like a slow pitch on a small field. And you're going to get worked all the way down to like 0. 0.34, 0. 0.35 seconds if you're facing a Raldis Chapman at like 105. So really we're going from like 0. 0.8 seconds to 0. 0.35 seconds. The difference between major league hitting and T-ball like rookie, like eight-year-old baseball is less than half a second from a, from a velocity threshold standpoint. So that's hitting, that's timing. Like how do you get ready to hit within that timing window? And then as you move up the ranks, you go from 
like being able to hit a moving ball in general to being able to hit a moving ball with some quickness demand to moving a moving ball with quickness demand and other pitches or the fastball moving in different directions. So you get the riding fastball, the cutting fastball, the sinking fastball. So there's all these like different dimensions that get added into it. But at the core of it, it's understanding when you need to get ready and how to execute your swing within a certain period of time. So yeah, there's, a, there's like that, a very clear progression. Yes. It's a very clear progression to me. There hit, can be. There can velocity. be. Yeah. yeah. Hit, hit velocity, hit changing speeds, right? Like, and, and so if when, from a training perspective and, and there's not, that doesn't mean that hit doesn't become important when you're talking about changing speeds because you, the hit, the swing tool, it always needs to be sharpened, right? It's like, you know, you're sharpening the ax, right? But now the, the job that the ax is doing is a little bit different. So like how dynamic does the ax need to be? Like, right? Like, well, if I need to swing the ax 150 times today, right? If I had 150 trees to knock down, the heavier I make that some, yeah, I was going to say some, I didn't, you know, the heavier you make that thing, the harder it's going to be to swing over and over again, right? The harder it's going to be to control it, the more, like, you know, if you have an ax in your hand and, and, and your hand keeps sliding down it, how many calluses are you going to get? So you, you, you optimize your ax for that. So, like, hit the ball. Like, learn how to hit the ball. Then learn how to hit slow moving ball right then you learn how to add speed and hit that and then once you feel like you've gotten to a point where you're at maximum velocity tolerance like does anybody ever need to hit more than 102 mile an hour fastball no right does anybody ever need to understand how to hit more than a 95 mile an hour fastball because the difference is between 95 and 98 and 99 i tell people all the time like 84 and 95 are the same to me i don't i don't know the difference anymore right because i can i can I can build the things that I need and look to the locations that I want to make 84 and 95 the same. Right. Um, and then really like start changing speeds. Can you change speeds in a controlled environment? Like it's, you can go hard, soft and flips and it still creates the same differentiation. How do you adapt the swing within it? As a matter of fact, you can probably make it more extreme in flips, right? but the concepts still stay the same because now you rely on your eyes to create timing. You hit with your eyes as Rich Gedman always used to say. So you have to like your eyes start to matter. And now have you built, have you built the swing to go with what your eyes are telling you, right? What your eyes are trained to tell you now. Yeah. I have one more thing that just pops in my head and I'm going to have to clip this and post it. Um, something that you just said triggered this in my brain and I really like it. People like to talk trash about hitting off the tee as it's like not applicable. It's not, it's not a, you're not solving the right problems, blah, blah, blah. Um, what swing are you practicing when you hit off the tee? Like if you're practicing a bad swing off the tee and then you're trying to use a different swing when the ball is moving, that's, that's bad. If like we, we talked earlier about the load defining the unload and the unload defining the load. If you're practicing a good swing and you're you're working to execute a swing whenever you want to off the tee, how is that a bad thing? It's literally controlling your timing to the utmost degree because you can swing whenever you want. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't isn't that a, what a crazy concept? Like you can, that you can swing with how quickness absurd. when you want to. 
How absurd is it to say that hitting off the tee is bad when, like, Hall of Famers, people that have been the best hitters of all time, made it part of their daily process? Do you think that was, like, an accident that they hit off the tee when they were 29? Now, bear in mind, like, I hated hitting off the tee. I thought it was worthless. Like, personally, I got not worthless, but, like, I didn't opt into it. I would rather go move the ball. Right, but I also would never put the machine on, ever. I hate hitting off the machine. I want flips. I want short overhand, like to get to get my prep in. That's me. It's personal. It's personal to me. I would never put the machine on. Hey, put the machine on at six o'clock. Like, oh, only the machine's right. Shut up, dude. Like you're wrong. As soon as you you pigeonhole yourself, you're wrong. All right, take us out. Hit on that note. Everybody enjoyed Thanksgiving. Pickle out.